Okay, here we go, here we go. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Thanks for coming back. Uh, it's great to see you again. This seems a little more normal when we get together, and there's always more stuff to say, although this should be an interesting little, little go here. Uh, let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, who makes us glad every week with the remembrance of your glorious resurrection and the Eucharist of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, make this day such a blessing that we from this worship, live the days that follow according to your favor through Christ our Lord. Amen. How you doing, everybody? Okay? Things are kind of getting busy here. Uh, you know, try to get back in the normal groove of getting to the, uh, to getting to, to Bible study in church. You know, we just sort of live and die uh, by what happens. I'm always, it's always difficult. Every year now, I, I think to myself, you know, what should we do? And what have I said? And what haven't I said? And maybe I should have said it again. She's fine. She's in the right place. Life's good. Uh, you know, what should I have said? You know, what didn't I say? What do you need to hear again? You know, what don't you need to hear? It's always, it's always a difficult, and you're at a range of different places. I, I realize uh, as new members come, you know, the catechumen has been such a valuable thing, and Pastor Gaines done a great job with that, and thanks especially to sponsors and catechists who have taken very good care uh, of folks. It's just, it's just kind of a different thing. What we're trying to do is get a lot of things in place in advance of moving next door. We don't want to wake up the first day that we're there and then say, um, you know, well, what do we do? I mean, we have a pretty clear notion of what we want to do and how far we want to go. So we have to try to get a few of those things in place now, including, uh, you know, you should think carefully. I was a little surprised by looking at the purple cards. People sort of put down the normal times, which I, I, I didn't expect that, so we'll have to kind of think about that, too. Uh, one of the things that seems clear from the gospel reading for this morning and it seems clear the longer I'm in the church, and you know, I, I begin to, you know, I've turned 50, and I'm going to turn 51. I begin to anticipate my own death. I said in a throwaway line to somebody the other this week, I said, you know, I'll be dead in 20 years. So, and that was uh, the person was equally my age, and I think that was a little bit of a shocker. But, you know, at some point, you know, my impatience begins to grow with what the church should be. I, I do, uh, I understand the need for patience and and um, for moving at a proper clip and all that sort of thing. On the other hand. Uh, there have been great eras in the church when people did a lot in a very short amount of time. And there have been eras when the church has really just been fallow for, uh, you know, decade upon decade. <clears throat> in some sense, you know, I can't control and you can't control what happens in the rest of, of, of the church or in the world. But one of the great things about a congregation is you have your own little space. And you have the chance in your own life uh, to, do, to do good. Now here's the thing, um, you are wherever you are. So take the sermon for this morning. If you want to be pre preoccupied at the level of whether or not you're going to obey, okay, so Jesus says, if you're going to be preoccupied at the level of whether or not he was real, he was the son of God, he said it, he meant what he said, he did it, how people could, you know, if you want to be preoccupied at that level, you will never get anything done. I would, I, would, I, would, I would suggest that that level is something like the church, when all the church does is suggest that what it's good for is keeping you out of hell. Which is a, a trick, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a trick that Lutherans fall into very easily because there's such an emphasis on justification by grace through faith. What does that mean? It means you're out of hell. People don't sort of consider the broader picture of what that means in a positive sense, just not in the negative sense. 
So, you know, if you want to define your life by, uh, wh what's really been interesting in my lifetime in the shift from modernism to postmodernism, and if you've been in various places, we've talked about this. But, you know, I grew up, one of, the, one of the effects of modernism was a very strong rationality. Rationality just means, in this easy sense, that uh, you only believe what you, can, uh, what you can measure, what you can prove, which, of course, means you can't have miracles, for example. So then, you know, the, the end of that project is the Jesus Seminar that decides that most of the Bible is just made up because they have a set of rules. The Bible doesn't fit into that set of rules, therefore it goes away. That's the ultimate modern, modernist project. And it may have been the last gasp for modernism in the church. What's interesting about postmodernists, who one of the things that they say, we, aren't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't say we're postmodern because we think postmodernism is great. We love postmodernism because it gives us an opportunity. Postmoderns say, hey, that's not the, we're not going to play by that set of rules. And now the moderns don't know what to do with that. When, when reason is no longer king, they don't know what to do. Because if reason is not king, suddenly there's a chance for miracles again, you see. Or, or there's, a, there's a chance for, 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 uh, for, for the intervention of God in our lives. This is a very happy sort of time. Well, I mean, if all you're arguing about, uh, someday I'll show you, if you come to my office, I'll show you a picture of the Lord's Supper where they only think the Jesus Seminar decided that Jesus only said about eight of the words in the, Lord's, in, in the words of institution. If that's what you're arguing about, whether or not Jesus said it, you never get to the point where, of asking what it means for your life. You never get that. You've defined your problem, and that, that problem has been defined in the church for 300 years. The great joy of where you're living now is the church is asking a different question. Many churches have come to the point where they understand that that is a bankrupt way of engaging. And so over the past few decades, what people have begun to do is just exactly what we're doing with our catechists on Saturday morning, which is they're just reading the text and saying, what does this mean for us? So part of what I'm trying to do is reorient you to a different question or a different challenge or a different problem. What I want to move you past is the notion of whether or not you should obey. You can argue about that all day long, but I just don't, I have no interest in that anymore. This is the church, you obey. The glorious question for us is what does obedience mean? How does it take fleshly form? What does it look like? What should we do? And in that you'll find that there is this remarkable amount of freedom and there's so much to do. There's so much to do. The church has so much to do it cannot be bothered by whether or not it will do it. The question is not whether or not we'll do it. The assertion is we will do it. Now what is it that we will do? Immediately then, people throw roadblocks up about that. Well, you're talking about good works, or you're trying to earn salvation, or you don't really know. You know, that is just another deflection. That's the boy lying on the couch, flipping through the channels, saying, I don't think so. So what we're aiming at is for all of you to say, I think so, where are we going to go? And it just happens that in our own history, you know, all the circumstances have come together. Um, really kind of, there's a great joy among the people that are here. There's a great opportunity next door. This is, you know, about as bad as the economy can get. And yet people here, uh, I hear very frankly, I do have people who have lost jobs and you know, their resumes come across my desk, but I hear very little complaining about, hey, we're not going to be able to make it or I can't. You know, people just have this sense of we're going to be fine, we're going to make it through, you know, things are going to open up for us, life's going to be good. 
So we have this, we, what we have is this sort of all these things coming together in terms of attitude, in terms of teaching, in terms of church and school, in terms of the, the place next door, in terms of new members, in terms of programs that are being put together. So happily, happily, our problem is not how to stimulate that. Everything is working. Our problem, though, is to guide that, to nudge it, to choose among all the possible options and really focus our fire and do things really, really well. And so we're doing a couple of things as we go forward, reading Galatians and James this year. Um, uh, one is to say, uh, you know, why we're so free. And two is to say, what do we do next? We're not going to argue about whether or not we should do it. We're going to argue, and I smile because I hear, uh, you know, we've, I think it was T.S. Eliot who said the greatest tyranny is, is, is uh, not knowing why you do what you do. And if I was going to retitle this, I'd kind of been thinking about it all week. Um, incorporation and participation, you know, what, here's a way to retitle this. Incorporation is, um, uh, is why we do what we do, and, and participation is what we do. So this is, this is what we do, incorporation, what we do, wh why we do it, incorporation, and what we do. I was just, I'm smiling because Gaining and I find ourselves, Pastor Nelson too, we find ourselves giving the sex lecture to a lot of kids lately, um, which is kind of fun for us because we're starting to get good at it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, here, I mean, basically, I, this, the part of the fun thing is, is when you can say things in about 10 words. So, you know, the sex lesson, lesson I mean, when, when kids, um, when kids, in, well, this will probably prevent them from introducing their, their, their significant high school or college other students, but when they introduce to it, we, we have no compunction about saying to them, um, you know, when they introduce their girlfriend or boyfriend again, we say, hey, if you, whenever you're ready to start having sex, just come and ask us. Because we, because uh, you know, we'll let you. We have a right for that. We call it marriage. You come in the front. You say to the congregation, "Can we have sex?" We say, "Yes." Be fruitful and multiply. Then we say, "But until then, you know, uh, just sort of hold back a little bit, okay?" I mean, you have to sort of get. One of the things I was reflecting on in my own church career as I brought up, you know, people always say, "You know, don't have sex before you're married." Of course, nobody could ever tell you why that was. It certainly wasn't because uh, you weren't hormonally ready. You know, it's because, just in case you're curious, because marriage is an icon of the church and sex is one of the parts of marriage, and in sex you get this great, you get this great emphasis on uh, thorough love, monogamy, utter faithfulness, utter care. Uh, so the reason you do that is you don't want to cloud the witness of Christ to his church. That's the reason you have sex before you're married, see? Now how many of you can say that to your kids? But the cool thing is, is you should be able to say it to your kids. And your kids should be able to say it to you. You should always be able to say why it is you do what you do. And so what we're trying to do is put these two books of the Bible together to kind of explain why you do what you do. It's important to know why you do what you do. The ultimate answer is, though, just so you know, because Christ asks you to do it that way. And to be a Christian is simply to say, I'll do what Christ asks. That's the assertion. What he asks me to do, I will do. What he bids, I will achieve. You know, what Christ cares about, I care about. And then you see, once that is set as the challenge, you have this great freedom, the playing field sort of open. What do you want to do? What's next? What are we good at? What's the particular composition of this congregation? How should we go forward? So take a look at your sheet here. Um, number one, we've come to this fascinating time together. 
you know, everything we've been doing for years is now coming together in the course of the next few months. It's going to be very different. A year from now, we're not even going to be in this space. So it's, it's a different place with a different feel, with a different challenge, with people in front of us. And it'll be physical, tactile, visible. I mean, the, 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 the physical, you know, it's across the, you know, across the Red Sea. You know, it's across the, it's a different thing. And as this happened, I just give you an odd bunch of facts. So I sort of talked about the challenges. A former member who said to me, uh, as the, this person was leaving, said to me, um, you demand more of me than Jesus does. Now, that is to accuse your pastor of heresy um, or to tell him he's exactly right. I don't know. It just, it just depends on who's right and who's wrong. That's a pretty tough charge. To demand more uh, of, of you than Jesus demands would be to run against the verse we're going to read next week, Galatians 1.8, where he says, if anybody demands more of you than Jesus demands, let him be damned. It's anathema. The technical Greek word is send him straight to hell. So that's a very difficult charge to engage. My response to that would be, your other pastors or whoever catechized you never told you what Jesus wanted from you. That, that many of you had never heard that Christ, scripture, prayer, the divine service, utter generosity, great acts of mercy and winsome witness are the, that's, that's, just, that's just the presuppositions of the church. That you had never heard that, or perhaps you grew up in the church and never heard that. That you never heard that it was about Christ and your neighbor, that it was all about mercy, that Christ favors the poor, that Christ does his works through you, that he extends his kingdom through, through the people that he baptizes and gathers. That's just a paucity of being taught over the course of your life. Okay? But sometimes it resonates with people. A new member, when I'm here, I'm home. To which we say, that's it, we got them. That's somebody we've got for a lifetime. When I'm here, I'm home. Which means that they're comfortable with the notion of obedience. They're not arguing anymore about whether they should obey Christ. They're comfortable with the notion that whatever Christ asks us to do, that we will do. It is the, obedience is the presupposition for going forward, and the joy is figuring out what we're going to do. Former vicar, I'm at dinner with some seminary professors, <clears throat> and the, uh, you know, over a couple of, after a, class, a couple of glasses of wine, they screw up the courage, and you know, one of them says, <clears throat> one of the former vicars complained that you don't preach the law at St. John. Uh, you know. Uh, I'd had a couple glasses of wine, too, so it all worked out. But, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that another day. But then I do, I do remind the current vicar, if he happens to be here, we haven't heard from him yet, but he can still fail. So uh, that's always good to know. Uh, or, or a new prospect who, we, you know, we said, are you joining? And they said, of course we're joining. You have incense. I mean, that's verbatim, okay? Which you think, hmm, what am I going to do with that now? Yeah, so, or gaining, you know, last week, um, it's been said that Lutherans are most afraid of three things, the Virgin Mary, good works, and the crucifix. Here's the thing. We got challenged on all three of those last week. Thanks a lot. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I, one person put it to him after the service, I can't believe you're telling us to worship the Virgin Mary, to which I want to go outside and hit my head on a rock. You know, all we said was, we said about the Virgin Mary what we say about the Jews, which is when God was chosen, he chose them first. He chose her first. Um, be glad for her. He chose her first. When he chose people, he cho chose the Jews first. Be glad for him. It's impossible for Christians to hate Jews. It's impossible because God chose them first. When he chose, he chose them. Faith agrees with God. And when he chose a woman, he chose Mary. Faith agrees with God. Nice choice. Good job. That's all we're saying. Okay? 
Um, but good works tend to stir people up. Okay, so what does our life look, look like together? This is point two. I'm going to put down some ground rules for you that I hope you've absorbed over the years. But one of the things that I realize is that I presume a lot of things without... Um, I figure because I've talked about it in the last 11 years, you all have just absorbed it. For crying out loud, you're not even the same people who were here 11 years ago. So sometimes I need to kind of say this again. Here's the number one thing, okay? I want you to be comprised of what you love and not what you hate. This is extraordinarily important. There are people in life, if you ask them who they are, they tell you what they hate. I hate the Virgin Mary. Ouch. Because Jesus doesn't, it's his mommy. Uh, <laughs> You just think about that before you say something about bad about his mama the next time. I mean, you know, this is how people get shot in the city. Uh, okay, so, so, you know, but be comprised by what you love. If people ask you about your church, be able to say what you love. I love the people around me. I love that my kids are at the school. Did you notice we're here at 9 o'clock? You know what I loved? Next to the Eucharist, you know what I loved most at the 9 o'clock service? Did you see how still the kids sat? I'm not even talking about the music. Did you see how they sat? Those were kids who had been trained to go to church. Okay, they just sat there, and I watched them. It was unbelievable. They just sat there, and there wasn't jacking around, and they weren't talking. They just, the other point, I watched them, and I never do this, but I watched them at the point when, when Pastor Gaining um, brought the words to the, to the cup. Kids were riveted. Okay, that's kids who have been to church before. You know what I love? I love that. I love the kids who are in third and fourth and fifth grade are utterly taken by what happens here on Sunday morning. You have a much easier time. When I came home last night, we had a friend visiting from California who has joined a new church, which has the same trouble that I had when I came here, which is they have their biggest service at 9.30, and they also have Sunday school at 9.30. So I don't know if you know this, but I've said this to some of you. When I came here in my first confirmation class, I was being asked to confirm kids who had never been to church before. Okay? Because they'd always been in Sunday school. So they were being asked to join something they had never seen. You know what the difference is now when you have those kids over there who utterly adore the Eucharist and sit still for it? We went an hour and 10 minutes. It's a little too long. Those kids were perfect. That's what I love. Be able to say what you love about a place, not what you hate. Be able to say what you love about the church, not what you hate. You don't say, they do it, therefore we hate it. They do it, therefore we don't do it. We don't want to be. What you want to say is, I love Christ, and Christ bids me to live this particular life. Be comprised of what you love, not what you hate, okay? Next, and this has probably come, you know, you probably figured this out over the years. I'm very big on playing at the highest common denominator, not the lowest common denominator, which means we're going to move at the speed of our best members, where best means mature, obedient, you know, wise. Because if you don't do that, what happens is your church falls to the member of the lowest common denominator and your wisest, best people get frustrated and eventually leave. They'll hang in for some years. But eventually, you know, if you're 30 and then you become 40 and you haven't been fed for 10 years, you find someplace else to go. If you play at the level of the highest common denominator, if you, if you, if you, if you understand obedience and authority as gospel words, what happens is when new people come in, they say, I want some of that. I got a letter of transfer this week from, from somebody who had a, who had a 
uh, a kid in the fifth grade. And the reason they're transferring is this kid needs a contemporary service. And what, I, we, what we wrote back is, okay, what I wanted to write back is, so your fifth grader knows what's best for his soul. Which is just another Wheaton example of, oops, I'm lapsing into things I hate, Par kids being parents. Parents be parents, kids be kids. Mature members be mature members. Immature members be mature members, be immature, but move to maturity from milk to meat. You know, that's how the scriptures talk. Grow up in the faith. Put these things on, take the other things off. Let's go. So much of the scriptures is just about let's go. And so much of the church is about, you know, not going. So comprised of what you love and playing at the top speed. You play at the top speed you can play at without hurting people. Yeah, it gets a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, it gets a little itchy sometimes. Yeah, I know, but the alternative is worse. This is the way the scriptures talk. Old women catechize young women. Old men catechize young men. Wise people rise to positions of leadership, and everybody else follows. That's how the scriptures are written. Read them. That's how they're written. Okay, which goes to the next thing then. We always choose leaders for people who are in the divine service, in Bible study, at the Eucharist, are generous or merciful. Yeah, everybody doesn't have everything, and we're not pietists looking for perfection. We're looking for people engaged in the struggle. You know, sometimes when somebody asks, why isn't that person a leader, why isn't that person a leader, kind of the answer is, unspoken is, because they're not here enough. They don't know what's going on. We choose people who show maturity. And you show maturity by being obedient. And the third commandment is the divine service every week. And the fourth commandment is live in order. And the fifth commandment is be merciful. Right? And the seventh commandment is be generous. And the eighth commandment is give a good witness. And the ninth and tenth commandments are live a life that's appealing to other people so they look at you and say, I want that. That's where we're going, okay? And then for the last three years, we've tried to talk about that in very specific things. Living in beauty, living as community, living as the embodied word of Christ. And then this kind of gets to the point where we, where we are. And I said this in the sermon this morning, and I say it to you again. People have sort of said, you know, what's the point of talking so simply about these stories? The point of it is, is I want you to be able to talk very simply to other people about what happens here. I was miserable and now I'm not. Or I'm still miserable, but I'm not alone. Or this is very painful, but I know God is for me, not against me. Or do you know what it's like to adore the Eucharist? When you move people to those directions, people begin to show up. We will have no excuses a year from now. The physical constraints are off. You know, there's going to be plenty of places to sit. There's going to be plenty of places uh, to park. The constraints are off. You'll have more space than you need more than. I mean, there's just nothing else going on. So, turn, flip your page three. What's common in these things? Okay, the interplay, and sometimes the struggle of grace and works. And while this has classically been a place where Lutherans kind of freeze up, I want to get you over that and eliminate all excuses. So what we're basically talking about is how these things fit together, you know. And let's struggle with the things we're struggling with. You know, is our problem really, is this really our problem? Is our problem really that your pastors are somehow saying to you that you can work your way to heaven? Is that really our problem? It's not our problem. 
So while we'll hold that as a presupposition and always hold that dear, that Christ is all and does all, that's not our problem in this particular place that we're trying to manage. It's not our challenge. Our challenge is trying to figure out what that looks like in the world. What does it look like to be a Christian? That's our challenge. What does it look like to be merciful? What does it look like always to speak well of other people? What does it look like to find justice? What does it look like for a bunch of moderns to engage a postmodern world and do that without scorn? In fact, to do it in a welcoming way, even though you may not be a postmodern. I mean, unless you're under 25, your chances are very small. Okay? But that's where the world is. So, our problem isn't that we think we're saved by, by works. Our problem is that often works don't show up in sufficient quantity. Our problem is often that we could do so much more. I mean, I have this, I just take tithing as an example. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just past the point of even talking about whether tithe actually means 10% or whether that's on the gross or on the net. That's a, you know what the question for me is now? How big can you go? Like, where, how far can you go uh, until you start to neglect your kids? Or, you know, my, that's not even my question. I don't even, I don't even, I'm not even interested in the question anymore about whittling things down or nudging them or shaving or degrading them or trying to cut the edges or trying to find a way around it. That's not what I'm interested in. It's not what Christ is interested in. Christ is interested in how much he can get done from you, how fast he can get that done before A, you drop dead, or B, he comes back. That's what he's interested in. And that's not to talk about working your way to heaven. That's, about talk, talk, that's, that's talking about follow me. That's talking about obedience. That's talking about trust. That's talking about authority. It's talking about Eden. And it's talking about all those things as the gospel and not the law. I don't have a gun to your head making you do this. You're here this morning of your own free will. Listen to Jesus. What does he say? Care for the poor. Be merciful. When you do it to somebody else, you do it to me. I'm in the stranger that you care for. Great. Let's find some strangers. There's a world full of them. Which one should we go find? Pick some. Okay. But the problem, of course, is, is we sometimes get bollocked up. Look at the next bit. The interplay incarnate, which just means it came in flesh. Paul and James. Okay, so you put these two together for me. Galatians 2 and James 2. A man, I'm on page 2, I'm two bullet points down under number 3. A man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Fair enough, I believe that. And you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. I believe that too. Okay? So the question is, how are you going to put those two things together? The answer is the Christian life, but it's going to take us a little while to get there. Um, it took Luther a little while to get there, too. In fact, he never got there. I rarely disagree with, disagree with Luther, but Luther's not Jesus. And a couple of times, you know, Luther said stuff like, James is an epistle of straw. We ought to stick it in the stove and use it for kindling. Or, um, I'm, I'm still trying to find this, but I know I have it somewhere, where he said, uh, if, you know, if I had my way, we'd tie a rock to it and drop it in the river. Right? Or I can give you this one. This James does nothing more than drive to law and to its works. Besides, he throws things together so chaotically that it seems to me that he must have been some good, pious man who took a few sayings from the other disciples of the apostles and then tossed them onto paper. So, see, I mean, Luther doesn't even raise him to the point of he's a regular disciple. We we'll have to talk about whether he was the first bishop of Jerusalem. That's still to come. 
In a word, he wanted to guard against those who relied on faith without works, but wasn't equal to the task. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think he was playing at a whole different level. I think he got out ahead of the church. Um, I think he probably talked in ways that people couldn't understand and maybe that people misunderstood. And I also know they're both in the canon of scripture. So um, the question is, can we get these two things together and have a little fun with them? Along the way, and this is extraordinarily important, um, one of the things I find is that people uh, can't speak clearly. Um, the other day I was accused of being blunt, but I didn't feel so bad because in the same week Pastor Gaining was accused of being blunt. So I'm thinking, if I'm an idiot, at least I'm not alone. <clears throat> However, uh, which is, you know, company misery among thieves. Yeah, exactly. So, so here's the thing, though. I've spent my whole life trying to learn to be blunt. Um, you know, I sort of took a vow against it for a few years, but I'm rethinking that. Um, as you can see, I shaved my head, and I may make good on this. So... Uh, most people cannot say what they mean. This is my own observation. This is personal. I speak as for myself and not as from the Lord. Most people cannot say what they mean. Most people don't think clearly enough to say what they mean, and most people are too suspicious to believe then what other people say. Okay? My goal in life is to say exactly what I mean and nothing else. I'm not a Gnostic. You know, I'm not a Gnostic. I'm trying to tell you exactly what I mean, and there's no subtext. There's just the text. It's all I'm trying to do. Okay? This boils down for confirmation kids and vicars to be able to say anything theological in ten words or less. So I want to challenge you as we go through, unless you know exactly what you're talking about. One of the reasons we can't give a good witness, we don't know exactly what we're talking about. Unless we know exactly what we're talking about, it's very difficult to explain what you mean to other people. So I give you a couple of, you know, this is sort of the ongoing Bruzek glossary, but I give you a few of these things, you know, some mine, some stolen from elsewhere. I give you a few of these things that you should sort of tuck away. I can give you proof texts if you want. In fact, I'll supply them as we go, but, you know, I just give you a couple of things. This is what the law does. So some people will say, this is one of the, this is one of the criticisms you're going to hear of what we're going to do. If you don't, you know, hear it in-house, you're going to hear it you know, on a blog somewhere because we put this on the internet and then people with nothing else to do listen to it and write about it and send coded messages through our vicar asking about it. And we pat him on the head and buy him another beer and tell him to settle down. So it's all going to be okay. The law demands. Single word. What's the law? How do you know it's the law? It demands. Or it measures you and you always come up short. Or you weigh. It weighs you and you never quite weigh enough. Or it forces you. Anything force is the way of the law. Uh, Pope John XXIII, beautiful distinction of law and gospel, I don't know, X number of years ago, 15 years ago, when he said men can rape their wives in marriage. People were like all crazed about that, that he didn't know what he was talking about. I'm like, whoa, good law gospel distinction. Because force is always the way of the law. Always. Force is always the way of the law. The law is always the way of coercion, you see. And at the end, that condemns and punishes you. And it's about you. You know, it's what you've got to do, and it ultimately ends up being against you. Okay? Here's the gospel. The gospel gives. The gospel blesses. It's not about you. It's always about Christ, and it's about Christ for you. The gospel is always for you. Pick one of those and run with it. 
but you should be able to begin to talk about what the law and the gospel do. It gives, it forgives, it's synonymous with Christ. It blesses, it encourages, it prompts, it loves. It's beautiful. That's the gospel. Faith in a single word, in one word, and trust is not good enough because trust still leaves you to, to, to the point of you trying to make a choice about something. And then you have to say, is my trust strong enough, blah, blah. In a single word, faith agrees. Faith agrees. Single word, it agrees. Christ speaks, you either agree or you disagree. It's that simple. You either say to that, thank you very much, or you say, I think I'll find my own way. Faith agrees. That's what faith is. So when we repent, what we're repenting of is our disagreements with God, our disobedience. This is why there's only one sin. Okay? Flip over. One place where Lutherans often get bollocked up is the difference between justification and sanctification. It's very simple. Justification is being forgiven. Sanctification is living forgiven. The two, you know, two sides of the same coin. They're not two things that fight against each other. They're two sides of the same coin. And then aphorisms. So someday when I'm old and there's no social security, you know, I'm gonna, I, I, I have this list of things that I, you know, someday I'm going to put aside. And I also have all the nasty letters I've ever been written in a file that I'm going to ask at the seminar if I can teach a course. I won't really lecture. I'll just pass the letters out. And then people will respond to that. And then I'll just say whether that works or not. This would be great, huh? Come on, everybody should have an annuity stream in some sense. So mine just happens to be in nasty letters. It's great. It's a very fat file. Every mistake in the ministry, in the church, in your own life, every mistake is a mistake of long gospel. Every mistake in life is a mistake of long gospel. Where you've acted by force, where you should have acted by grace. Where you've measured somebody up and punished them when you should have been patient with them. When Jesus asked you to obey and you refused that and put it on him rather than on yourself, every mistake, every mistake in your life, in the ministry, in your marriage, in your workplace, every mistake in a Christian's life is a mistake of the law and the gospel. Okay? Now here's the thing. You can't be paralyzed because you might make a mistake. But you also can't live, and just for you moderns who have been sweating me for about a month over this, you can't live as a postmodern whose A doesn't follow from B. At the end of the day, we like postmoderns because they believe in miracles. At the end of the day, we hate postmoderns because 70% of them believe in Jesus and 60% of them think that Jesus was a sinner. What? And that's what we don't like about postmoderns. They can't, they can't you know, get both shoes tied. You know, it's an A to a B. It doesn't follow. So here's the thing. What we just is, I mean, here's the key. This is almost, you know... We're actually moving people to be pre-modern again, which is where Luther was, where the gospel draws reason into its service, where the gospel draws emotion into its service, where the gospel draws everything you, everything you are into its service, you see? So we're free to live in forgiveness within the body of Christ, and that's the goal. You know, we're not going to argue about whether we're going to talk mean about each other. We're not going to talk mean about each other. We're not going to say what we hate about each other. We're going to figure out how we love each other and how we go forward. That's what we're going to do. That's the level we're playing at. That's the highest level. That's the level of play, play, playing at your most mature members. That's the level of being defined by what you love. That's the level. So there's all sorts of ways to talk about this. You can talk about it as incorporation. You're incorporated at your baptism. 
and then you participate as a fellow member of the body of Christ, just like we say in the liturgy. Or you can talk about it as being embodied by Christ. I just, I was communing two kids next to each other, brother and a sister today. Might have been a brother and a brother. I just thought to myself, they're fairly new communicants. I thought to myself, I wonder if they'll go home and remember that the body and blood are in each other. I wonder if their parents will say to them when one of them whacks the other one today, he's got the body and blood in him. Don't hurt it. You know, I just wonder. You know, or you can talk about it as acts of mercy, words of witness, care of the soul. You get your soul cared for here. You go out and act mercifully. You go out and be a good witness. You bring more people in. Their souls get cared for. Everybody goes out, acts in mercy, acts in witness. You bring more people in. You get your souls cared for. It's this, this is how Jesus describes the church. Sends out the 72. Get busy. This is the end of Matthew uh, 28. Go tell everybody. Go tell everybody everything I left behind and teach them to love it. You, you always hear it as, teach them to obey everything I commanded. And the Greek actually says, teach them to treasure up everything that I left behind. And that's the same word used uh, for Mary, where she treasured everything up in her heart after um, she knew she'd be the mother of God. Very different way to talk about it. It's actually a distinction of law and gospel. If you think Jesus is doing this to you, you've never met Jesus. Jesus is doing this to you and saying, hey, why don't you come play with me? So you might read some of these. It's late now, um, but you might read some of these. But just turn over on the back page. Sometimes the shortest ones are the best. Look at this one, but second to the last one, Aidan Nichols. A faith based on divine incarnation. Okay, so a faith based on the fact that Mary was the mother of God, that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity in flesh. A faith based on divine incarnation will eventually find expression in the realm of the visible, the tactile, the loving, the good, the community, the beautiful. Eventually it'll come if you tend the Eucharist and remember your baptism and go to Bible study. It's that simple. It's not that hard. All right, here we go. Let's pray and uh, on your way. We can get, write your questions down, send them along. We'll play again next week. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.